looking outside of the sciences outside of the east west or science versus art dichotomies professor amrita shah visiting faculty at the center for contemporary studies at the indian institute of science writer and former journalist looks at the political undercurrents of tagore's multifaceted engagements with the public sphere the tagore family was deeply involved in artistic pursuits and provided cultural leadership at a time when it was crucial to create an indian personality that defended its self respect in response to the humiliation of colonial rule tagore made it his life's mission to quest for a basis for unity with the world but being wary of the violence that accompanied political oppositions tagore held on to his identity as a poet throughout his life in looking for a non political basis for world unity Tagore initiated projects in education, lectured abroad, and carried on long correspondences with interlocutors from Germany, England, and Japan. He maintained a persistent, if somewhat uneasy, relationship with his correspondents by finding a tone and temper that transcends difference, through imagination, through love, and through friendship. In recalling the spirit of a ball singer, Tagore says. I revel only in the gladness of my own welling love. In love there is no separation but commingling always. Amrita recalls this and the humanist concern enshrined in Tagore's words where the mind is without fear where the head is held high. Well first of all you know I found that the debates outside the kind of thinking outside on these uh, outside of the natural sciences because most people have talked about the Niels Bohr Einstein in the Copenhagen uh, equivalence and then they kind of say that Einstein was perhaps sort of uh, he was going to be angry with Tagore because he kind of almost saw that this was a sort of Niels Bohr kind of position where the human you know where he talks about the human being at the center of reality or the human being outside anyway as i said so looking outside what i found is the two kind of the the debate has usually been pegged on these two kind of dichotomies art versus science and east versus west one of the talks i found was by the british born indian composer nitin soni which is a bit unusual uh, he claims that tagore's subjectivity is based on an ancient eastern philosophy while einstein's objectivity is based on western science This according to him is reflected in the individual perceptions of music and also the differences between eastern and western music and we saw some of that in the conversation uh, here so what sony quotes einstein is saying is that mozart did not write but he discovered music that was already there to him music was objective mathematical and knowable uh, you know it was like a puzzle to be solved while for tagore on the other hand music was a painting to be expressed which is a more intuitive approach and it it also kind of correlates with indian classical music's oral tradition and its subjectivity in the sense that there's greater uncertainty and it varies each time you perform so this is again you know the kind of bohr later quantum physics and versus einstein kind of this is how he's pegging this of course i also came across sundar sarukai's um talk <laughs> not surprisingly so what what sundar does is talks a bit about how uncomfortable Einstein was uh, in a sense with the talk because he he later wanted some of it cut and he also told Roman Roland that it shouldn't have been published at all uh, so he senses a certain discomfort in Einstein and how Sarukai sees this he he takes this kind of first of all the divergence between the two between Tagore's position on the human and reality and uh, 
Einstein's. Uh, and he, he takes this divergence as well as the kind of discomfort <coughs> that he senses. He, he says that they're kind of talking past each other, not, not to each other. He believes that Einstein was frustrated, and this, this is a problem, he says, of doing philosophy of uh, science in India. He says that the very concepts are defined, you know, what is science, um, what is philosophy, even other concepts, for instance, democracy or secularism, etc. They're defined by one culture, and then there is a kind of question about whether the other culture does it or has that tradition or not. It seems to kind of set up a, a kind of false question, you know, and also sen- sets up a hierarchy in a sense, because the, the concepts are defined and articulated by one culture, and, and then there's a sort of demand that the other culture uh, conforms to that. So what Sarukai claims is that Tagore has a set of uh, solution. There's a solution in Tagore uh, to this question where he relies on the intuitive. So for instance, he talks about ordinary people doing philosophy, uh, doing philosophy. Is it doing philosophy if you're conversing about philosophical subjects? Or he talks about Baal singers. And I, I found this Baal song, which I believe Tagore often quoted, which bears out what Sarukai is saying about Tagore's position. So I just thought I'll, I'll quote it. That is why, brother, I became a madcap bowl. No master I obey, no injunctions, canons or customs. Now no man-made restrictions have any hold on me, and I revel only in the gladness of my own welling love. In love there is no separation, but commingling always. So I rejoice in song and dance with each and all. So now, you know, keeping these, these views in mind, I started thinking of Tagore, uh, Tagore's political project. Now I know that sounds a bit odd because we're not used to thinking of Tagore as a political person. Uh, I mean, you know, he, he wrote about, he wrote on political matters, he renounced his knighthood after the Jallianwala Bagh massacre, so we know he was sort of, you know, he, he commented on political matters, but he was also wary of the kind of potentially violent consequences of political action as we see very uh, clearly in the exchanges with Gandhi. Um, and of course, he constantly kind of kept reiterating that I am a poet, I am a poet. You know, so I think we tend to see Tagore as a kind of fuzzy, idealistic, uh, non-political figure. But I think in a way what Tagore was involved in was, deep, was a deeply political project. And just for a moment I'd like to kind of talk a bit about his family, which I'm sure most of you are kind of aware of. But Rabindranath's father, Debendranath, was an educationist, also well-versed in the Upanishads. Uh, his grandfather, Dwarkanath, uh, who is known as Prince Dwarkanath, was an extremely wealthy landowner, was a friend of the social reformer Raja Ramohan Roy. Uh, Rabindranath's brothers promoted Bengali at a time when English was very much in vogue. His nephew was an artist, Abhinindranath. Uh, Rabindranath himself you know, had studied the Upanishads, uh, Buddhism, classical Sanskrit literature, saint poets like Kabir, Nanak, and Chaitanya. And of course, he was very, very well versed in the Western uh, literature, including I think I read somewhere that even, for instance, he was very, very well up on someone like T.S. Eliot, who was like 30 years his junior. And I think he was very much taken with the West's ideas of uh, humanism. Uh, so what I'm suggesting is that this family and then Rabindranath at the center of this uh, provided a cultural leadership at a time, and it's quite crucial if you look at the late 19th century, uh, there is a kind of agenda to to kind of capture the Indian mind on the part of the British, not, you know, not just ruling, but there is a sort of through education and through various other means to create a certain servility, or also a certain idea of British uh, superiority in all matters. And at that point, 
if you see that this sort of cultural leadership does provide some kind of direction at a time of perhaps great confusion. So I want to quote Uma Das Gupta, who's a Tagore scholar at this point. Um, she says, the creation of an integrated Indian personality free from the conflict of communities was a quest for self-respect in response to the humiliation of colonial rule and the weakness of a divided people. The quest was also to find a basis of unity with the world. Ramon Roy and Dwarkanath Tagore had hoped for an equal racial partnership between India and Britain in all spheres of political, economic and cultural activity. What they did for such a partnership in their own time was no longer possible at the end of the century, but the urge for unity was not lost on the young, younger generation. One of Rabindranath's contributions to contemporary culture was his restoration of the Upanishadic perception of becoming one with the whole world and making that a dominant element in the evolution of a cultural ideology. So in, in Tagore's own words, uh, the whole world is becoming one country through scientific facility. And the moment is arriving when you must also find a basis of unity which is not political. If India can offer to the world her solution, it can be a contribution to humanity. Now, you see Tagore striving, striving for this in various ways, or whether it is through the setting up of uh, the Vishwa Bharti, which, is like, uh, which was an educational uh, center for the study of humanity, where he, uh, where he sort of saw East and Western scholars coming together. He did it through the inter sort of assiduously international outlook that he promoted uh, in the face of you know, great sort of popular appeal of nationalism. Uh, it is also through the exhausting lectures, lecture tours that uh, Rabindranath undertook to, he went to Europe, North America, Japan, China, Iran, Latin, Latin America, talking about these ideas of East and West and unity and so on. But he also sought to achieve this through correspondence and an exchange of views. So Tagore had a series of interlocutors. One was the German philosopher Count Hermann Kesseling, who accompanied Tagore uh, in Germany when he went to his highly publicized tour in 1921. And they maintained a long correspondence till Kesseling's death. Uh, the other person who he wrote to regularly was Edward Thompson, who was an English missionary and a Bengali scholar. And funnily enough, now I came across an essay on the Kesseling-Tagore relationship. And the title of the essay was A Difficult Friendship. And then I come across a collection of letters between Tagore and Thompson. This is the other person, which is also called a difficult, a difficult friendship. And then there is this remarkable association with Okakura Tenshin, who was this uh, renowned uh, Japanese art historian and curator, who was um, very much kind of, he was an imperialist and then called an ultra-nationalist. It was his ideas, in fact, that very much kind of, uh, were very, very important in Japan and in the early 1900s. Um, now, while Tagore, as we know, was a firm opponent of the cult of nationalism and certainly very, very vocal in his opposition to Japan's imperial uh, aspirations <coughs> in Asia. So clearly, there's another difficult friendship. And then we have this very uneasy conversation with Albert Einstein. So the point I'm trying to make is that obstructions or differences or hurdles or any kind of unease, none of these factors seem to stand in the way of the unity that Tagore envisaged. So if you look at his most famous verse, um, where the mind is without fear and the head is held high, and the head held high, where knowledge is free, where the world has not been broken up into fragments by narrow domestic walls, where words come out from the depths of truth, then you see a vision. And since Tagore saw himself primarily as a poet, we have to call it a poet's vision, which was to 
transcend differences through the imagination, through love and friendship, and through the oneness of man and the oneness with nature and universe. So this ties up with the position he takes in the dialogue with Einstein, where he puts human experience at the heart of reality and truth. And I just wanted to end with a few words by Tagore, which again kind of, I think, uh, uh, it's interesting because I, I didn't realize that some of it is actually in the dialogue, so I'm not quite sure how, uh, and Einstein says these things, so I'm a little confused. But anyway, this is from an essay by Rabindranath Tagore called The Poet's Religion. He says, facts occupy endless time and space, but the truth comprehending them all has no dimension. It is one. A drop of water is not a particular assortment of elements. It is a miracle of a harmonious mutuality in which the two reveal the one. No amount of analysis can reveal to us this mystery of unity. Matter is an abstraction. We shall never be able to realize for what it is, for our world of reality does not acknowledge it. Even the giant forces of the world, centripetal and centrifugal, are kept out of our recognition. They are the day laborers not admitted into the audience hall of creation. But light and sound come to us in their gay dresses as troubadours, singing serenades before the windows of the senses. What is constantly before us, claiming our attention, is not the kitchen, but the feast, not the anatomy of the world, but its countenance. And then he goes on to say, let us suppose that the man from the moon comes to the earth and listens to some music in a gramophone. He seeks for the origin of the delight produced in his mind. The facts before him are a cabinet made of wood and a revolving disc producing sound. But the one thing which is neither seen nor can be explained is the truth of the music, which is his personality, sorry, which his personality must immediately acknowledge as a personal message. The facts of the gramophone make us aware of the laws of sound, but the music gives us personal companionship. Thank you.